are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he had prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God those who are scattered abroad. So at that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went there to a region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jewish people was at hand, and he went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Do you think he'll not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's my delight today to hand over to Paul to come and share God's word. I'm going to just pray for you, Paul, and I'm going to run in to the flame eagles and get assaulted. <laughs> Let me pray for you, Paul. Lord, we thank you at LBC that we have such a gift of young men willing to open your word, to share your word, and that you've equipped them by your spirit to do it. So we know today for Paul, we thank you for him and Nom and the family. We pray now as he brings your word to your people that your spirit will equip him, enable him, and that you would open our hearts to hear what you're saying to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank, Thank you. you, Paul. Okay, um, you've all got your Bibles open, hopefully. I'm going to get my notes sorted here. So, there we go. Um, maybe just a little note at the beginning. Um, lots of you have prayed for us um, because our car packed in. Um, praise God. Thank you for your prayers and thank you for those who've given. And we've actually managed to acquire a car. It's a white Yeti out there. <laughs> and we love it. So far it's a downsize thing, but we, we will make it work and it's good and we're thankful because the Lord provided and we're not going to complain about it. Um, good. Let's dive into um, our text today. Just as a way of introduction about the Gospel of John, we've been in it almost a year now, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, we've seen many things, heard many things about Jesus. If you remember, um, one of the first things that were said about Jesus was John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then later Jesus went on to say um, about himself, The Son of Man shall be lifted up in, like a snake in the desert that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then we've already gone through five of the seven I am statements of Jesus, and they are all both bold claims um, that he says about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And um, last week we heard about I am the resurrection and the life. And these are all claims that were made about Jesus or by Jesus. 
Can he live up to them? That's the big question of the book of John. John's, the Gospel of John has one purpose, and that's to um, persuade you, persuade me, the reader, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Um, in John 20, verse 30 and 32, um, I've just got 32 here, uh, 31 here, sorry, I can't speak this morning. And it says that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what the whole book of John is about. So the whole book of John has this one main point. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that by believing in him you may have eternal life. So over the past two weeks, we've actually been in John chapter 11, and um, we've seen Jesus deal with grief, with death, with sadness, with accusations even. Um, we've seen him being really patient with his confused disciples. We've seen him lovingly handle the sad sisters, the grieving sisters. And we've seen him raising a dead man who was dead for four, years, four days. And we've seen him that he has power and authority over man's final enemy, death. Because this guy was dead for four days, and it wasn't just a sleep because he had a hungover or something, but he was actually dead. He was in the tomb for four days. They had, um, I was going to say marinated, no, but they had embalmed him with all these things um, and put him in the tomb. So he was, he, was, he was dead. People knew that he was dead. But after four days, he came out. He is living proof of God's and Jesus' authority. And what a surprise that was. What a joy for his friends, for his siblings. The sisters must have been overjoyed. Their beloved brother was back. Um, back in those days, they used to have professional mourners. When you died, you paid somebody to cry. These guys, mostly ladies, would probably be at the tomb and at their house. They were around when Jesus raised Lazarus. They lost their job that day. I'm not sure if they paid them full price or not, but... Um, <laughs> Their mourning was turned to rejoicing. And it was truly a magnificent moment in time. And if there was any doubters in the crowd, surely this must have convinced them. Surely this must persuade them to believe that Jesus has authority over everything. And there was no denying this miracle. And that's where our text begins today. And it starts in verse... Um, 45 and 46, and I said that's the reaction to the miracle. Many believed, and it's not surprising to be honest. If I saw somebody rising from the dead, I would believe. How could they ignore this amazing proof of Jesus' great authority? They'd seen him do all kinds of things before. They've seen him even raise other people from the dead, but they were only dead for hours. Some, there was one little girl where they said, oh, she's just asleep. But this guy was dead for four days. He already stank. He was rotting away already. That was nothing short of spectacular. And they were persuaded, this guy does live up to his words. He does what he says he does. His actions match up with his words. He's not like the politicians and like all these other guys who say all these things. And then once they've got your vote... They do something else. No, we want to follow this guy because nothing and no one can stop him. 
But uh, not everyone was on the same page. Some people went to the Pharisees. Um, and it doesn't say that they didn't believe the facts. It doesn't, doesn't say that they said, no, no, this is just a trick. He's just placed somebody else there. This is not true. There was nothing they could say. There was this man who was dead coming out and he was wrapped in these um, cloths. But their hearts were hard against Jesus. Most likely, they were people who were like spies for the religious leaders who came and observed Jesus and watched him very closely, everything that he did. And then they went back and reported to their authorities. And then in verse 47 to verse 43, we have the crisis meeting. And because of this news that Jesus just raised a man who was dead for four days, the Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, whatever you want to call it, came together. And it was mainly up, made up of um, Pharisees who were very, very pious people who followed the law of Moses by the letter, and Sadducees who also followed the law of Moses by the letter, but they didn't believe in resurrection. But there was Lazarus. They didn't believe in an afterlife. And so there was a lot of tension between these two groups. And um, they would usually just concern themselves with some kind of religious questions and things um, and discuss stuff. And one of their roles was to test prophets. So somebody says something, does it come true? Is he a real prophet or not? So they were asking the same question as John in the book of John, in the gospel of John. Is Jesus who he says he is? Are his claims true? So somebody called this, these guys together and they all came together. And the big question is, what are we going to do? This guy just raised somebody who was dead for four days. There's no disproving it because Lazarus is walking around. There was thousands of people, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people who knew Lazarus was dead. But now he's walking around. And asking what are we going to do about this is a good question. If you have the right motives. And we've read of these two responses. So the people who saw it also had to ask the question, what are we going to do about this? Are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to believe him? And they did believe him. And now these guys, what are we going to do about it? Should they take heed? Should they listen to him? Or should they just ignore him? Or should they say he's a false prophet? What are they going to do? And their main concern is in verse 48. They said, if we let him go on like this, Everyone is going to believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And I think Daniel pointed out what the people expected in a Messiah, um, in, a, yeah, in a leader. They expected someone who was strong, powerful, forceful, violent, courageous. Somebody who steps up to the oppressors. And leads the people into a new era of freedom, of um, yeah, greatness, maybe even becoming a world power. But Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus was meek. Jesus was quiet. He had this ragtag group that followed him. They weren't soldiers. Jesus wasn't a soldier. Jesus was too gentle. And if everyone followed this gentle leader, if they stand up against the Romans... There was no way escaping the Roman brutality. 
And he was supposed to uh, stand up to the oppressors, to the Romans, not to the Jewish authorities. But that's what Jesus did. We never read that Jesus stood up against the Romans and said, you evil oppressors. He never did. The people he stood up against was the re religious leaders. And their biggest concern is that they will lose power. And maybe even their place of worship. All they cared about was, well, if they all follow him and not follow us, then we don't have any power. We can't say, you can't do this, and all kinds of things. And you, they can't force people to buy certain sheep in the, in the temple to sacrifice them and so on. And then in verse 49 and, 45, uh, and 50, we've got the conclusion. It says there's so Caiaphas, the high priest at this time, um, he says something. And he says, you all know nothing. And the way he starts his talk off is very rude already. He's just calling these seven, there's about 70 guys. They were the wisest of the wise in the whole of Israel. And he says, you're all idiots. And he's the high priest. He's their leader. And it's said about the Sadducees that they were very rude people. Maybe because they didn't believe in an afterlife and a resurrection. So who cares what they do? They might as well just behave the way they want. But he says, you know nothing at all. You're all idiots. You have no idea about what you're talking about. And we've just read the text. I kind of want to take him and say, you're the idiot. You have no idea what you're saying. You don't, you don't know anything. You're just saying something because you think you know something. And he's very obnoxious, I feel, to like, tell the wisest people of Israel, you're all idiots. You don't know anything. He says, you don't understand. Nor do you understand that it's better for one man that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Some translations say it's expedient to you, or you could say um, it's convenient to you that one man should die. It's useful, it's beneficial to you. So to Caiaphas, Jesus' death is just a political convenience. Like, let this guy, one guy die, and it's all good. Let him take one for the team, let him die. We all can continue living our lives. We can stay in power over the Jewish people. The math checks out too, doesn't it? The one for the many. Why should the many suffer? Because one of them does something that we don't like. So let's get rid of this one. And the many will stay safe and will continue doing what they're doing. It's a clever little chess move. Like a chess master, you know, he plays 3D, 4D chess. Says, you know what, we're going to sacrifice this one pawn... And then I can, we can defeat the Romans and we don't have any of these, these issues. Caiaphas had political purposes for the assass assassination of Jesus. He wanted to just avoid the conflict with the Romans. He didn't want Ju the Jews to suffer anymore. Or maybe he just didn't want to lose his own power. But he was willing to sacrifice a human for it. And you can read in the Old Testament what God thinks about human sacrifice. He wouldn't literally, literally kill him himself, but we know that David did a similar thing, didn't he, once? And yeah, I wouldn't want to be around Caiaphas. If he wants to get rid of Jesus, and nobody's safe, really. His heart was so hard that he was willing to take another man's life just to stay in his position of power. He, who should have been the shepherd of the people, was willing to throw one of his sheep to the wolves to save his own backside. You know, here, oh, there's a wolf. Quick, 
take this sheep, eat it. The wolf's full, I am safe, I still have all my sheep, I can do what I want. And just this week I was um, reading in Ezekiel, and Ezekiel 34 speaks about shepherds and what God does with shepherds who don't look after the sheep. And the irony doesn't escape that Jesus is indeed the great shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He looks after us. And Ezekiel um, 34 verse 11 speaks about God who is like a shepherd who goes after his lost sheep. And it's, yeah, to me it's just fascinating that this is happening. And Caiaphas thinks in his own brilliant mind and understanding, I'm trying to sort, I'm sorting these things out. This is really good. And yet he knew nothing of the significance of what he just said. He didn't understand that God was using him. He was in fact the idiot that God used, the kind of donkey that God used to speak to Balaam, to these people. And he showed, the pe- he showed them how God was going to do things. God would not only save the Jews from perishing, but also all those around him. Um, and Pentecost writes in his um, the works and words or the words and works of Jesus Christ. He says, while Caiaphas proposed proposed the death of Jesus as a solution to his immediate political problems, God purposed his son's death as a solution to the problem of the sin of the whole world. <coughs> One moment, I just. I'll read that again. Um, it says, um, while Caiaphas purposed, proposed, sorry, while Caiaphas proposed the death of Christ as a solution to the immediate political problem, God purposed his son's death as a solution to the problem of the sin of the whole world. And then they, make the strat- they start making a strategy, how can they get rid of Jesus? And verse 53 says, so therefore from that day on they made plans to put him to death. We have read before that they wanted to kill him, but that was like, yeah, we should, we, should, we should get rid of him. Hopefully somebody will. At one point the people tried to stone him, but it didn't work out. So now they're actually making steps to killing Jesus. They're making plans. And there's these 70 wise men, the wisest men of Israel, following this idiot, listening to him. They should have known better. They knew all of the prophecies. They knew all the scriptures. And their decision to kill Jesus was not based on the evidence that they saw. It was only based on their own unbelieving, hardened hearts. And the evidence that they had indeed about Jesus was that Jesus is who he he says he is. He has the power to raise the dead. He is indeed Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they could have eternal life. But instead of believing the evidence, they decided to ignore it. And not only ignore it in their pride, but their hard hearts, they were willing to go against their conscience and against all the evidence. They had made up their minds. They would stand on the wrong side of history and eternity. And the lust for pride and the greed for authority and power blinded their eyes. And these guys should have known better, but they didn't. And we kind of skipped verse 51 and 52, because that's a little bit of a commentary that John gives us there, which I find um, very helpful and very insightful, because we don't know why Caiaphas said these things. But it says there, um, He did not say this of his own accord, 
But being the high priest of the year, he prophesied that Jesus was died for the nations, and not only for the nations, uh, for the nation, but also to gather in to one all the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John tells us here that God used this immoral and evil man to foretell the method of salvation for the whole world. And the method is not new. We know that from the beginning, God said, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The first sin that ever happened was followed by the first death that ever happened. God himself killed, a, killed an animal, most likely a lamb for these people. And then later, God told the people, you have to kill a lamb. You, you do something bad, you have to kill something. He, he was showing them how bad sin was. And remember what John said about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. No animal could ever take away the sin. It would cover the sin. But here is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now we come to this great news that John writes about. And he says, Jesus would die for the nation, yes, but not for the nation only. But also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And this has applications even to today, even to us here on whatever this is, Monk Street, Croft Street, I don't know. I'm not from Lincoln, so I don't really know. But it has applications right in this place. Around us, it has application everywhere and if it wasn't true that Jesus died to not only save his nation but all the people around then there was no hope for us but praise God it is true Jesus died for us he not didn't just die for the nation but he died for all who would believe in him and this offer is still available today and we know that Jesus died, did die eventually and he gave his life so that we can have eternal life and um, something that comes out in this passage as well is that Jesus didn't just die to save us. He dies to unite us. He didn't just come to save us from the consequences of our sin, from hell. No, He died to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And in the church, in the true church, there is no boundary, there is no border, there is no nations, no ethnicity, uh, eth Ethnicity, ah, I can't say the word. There's no nations, no ethnicities. That's we, there we go. Um, there's no cultures that have more power than Jesus. Jesus' power and Jesus' blood goes across all this. There's nothing that can stand up to the wall-demolishing power of Jesus. There's no wall, no ditch, no chasm that can withstand the unifying power of Jesus. Jesus loves and saves all kinds of people. And if all would believe in him, all would be saved. There's nobody that's excluded from, from salvation. Just because you live like this, just because you do, do this, doesn't mean you can't be saved. Jesus died for all who would believe. And only a short time later, after Jesus died in the first church, he unified the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles. The Jews wouldn't have even gone into a house of a Gentile if they didn't absolutely have to, because that would defile them. He's filthy, dirty pagans. And then we read in Ephesians 2.14 that Jesus demolished the fence, the wall that was in between, and he made one family out of arch enemies. 
And even today, 2,000 years later, we're still in God's family. And thankfully, working with new tribes, we see that day in, day out, we hear of people coming to know the Lord here and there, all over the world. There are cultures who see things very, very different from us. But because of Christ, we're unified. And there can be a church, and there's unity. And I've been to different places in this world, and you go into a church, and they're believers in Jesus, and you know that you have a connection with them. You don't even know them a long time, but you know that there's a connection that only God can bring. And God and Jesus are still in the business of bringing people in. And there are billions in this world, billions, not millions, billions who don't have access to the truth, to the gospel. And just to show you how much billions is, um, if we were to say a name a second for just one billion people, so like Paul, Nom, Lizzie, I'm just looking just there, Lizzie, Andrea, Mar Malvinos, and so on. If we take one second for each person, for one billion people, it would take, without a break, without a breathe, without sleep, anything, 31 and a half years for one billion people. This world has 8 billion people. So, and if we take... 10% that apparently have made a decision about Christ, whether they actually want to believe Him or not, but like a conscious decision. Take those 10% away. We are still, we're left with 90% who have not made a proper decision because they haven't seen the proper facts. To say all their names, one second each, would take 227 years. That is a lot of people. And Jesus died for each one of them. And Jesus loves each one of them more than I can love my wife and my children. We have about 100 people in here, maybe, maybe a bit less. But 100 people take about 1 minute and 20 to count. 1, 2, 3, 4. There's 227 years worth of people who are in this world who don't know about Jesus and who maybe not, can't make a proper decision about Him. There's much to be done, but we're not alone. Jesus is in the business of finding his people. Jesus is in the business of going out and reaching out. And we can be part of that. And it's a big privilege to be part of that, to reach out, to share the good news with sinners like me, sinners like you. And Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we can benefit from it. And we benefited not just like Caiaphas was thinking, all this political gain that I get. I keep my power. I keep the Romans away from us. No, this is a benefit that lasts into eternity. It's life everlasting. It's life that we have even after we die. We are the helpless beggars and He is the glorious Savior who saves us. Yeah, but these, uh, this council of 71 wise men, the wisest men in Israel at that time, make a decision. They want to kill Jesus. What does Jesus do? He's wise. He knows it's not my time. I know they're, going, they're coming after me. I am going to die. He decides to go away. It says that Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Jesus knew what these guys were planning without being in the room. He knows everything. He knew that wasn't just a thought that they had, oh, we should kill him. 
he knew they were planning to kill him. There was a, they were actively pursuing killing him. So he withdrew. He left. Maybe for the safety of the people who were around him. But also probably like Spurgeon suggests that Jesus took time away. He took time. He went into the wilderness. We don't read anything about miracles, about teaching big groups, about preaching. He's, he went away with his disciples. He taught them and he spent time with his father. He was getting ready for the last week of his life that would cost him his life. And it might be a good application for us if we know that there's something big ahead. It's a good thing to withdraw from other things and to come close to the one who can give us strength, our Father. And the last three verses, they're 55 to 57, I said the question marks because I tried to make alliterations and I couldn't come up with another C, so it's the question marks, which is still a sound. Um, what would happen next? So the Passover was at hand, and here we see people asking a question, what do you think? Is he going to come? Is he going to show up? And it's possible that there was five months between Jesus raising Lazarus and Jesus coming to the Passover. So he spent some time away. Um, and in the Gospel of John, we find three um, Passovers, and Jesus' ministry was three years, so each year had a Passover. The first year, he went in to the temple, and that's when he cleansed the temple. And it seems to me that nobody really knew who this guy was because he manages to walk in and nobody realizes that he's there until he causes chaos. The second year, he actually didn't go to the Passover, at least at the time when it was Passover. He may have come a bit later. And now his final Passover is approaching. Maybe just a little reminder of what the Passover is all about. And the Jews would celebrate this feast as a reminder of their slavery to Egypt. They were oppressed and treated very badly. So they shouted to God. They called out to God and God heard them. And we know the story of Moses and the ten plagues. The tenth plague would be killing the firstborn son. And we can find the, the account there in Exodus 11. And this plague wouldn't just be for the um, Egyptians. It was for everyone, even for the animals. Everyone living in the country. But as always, God leaves a way out. And there was one way out to be protected from the angel of death who'd come around midnight. And that was to take a lamb, a one-year-old male lamb, into your, <coughs> into your house 14 days before the, the actual thing would happen. So you have this little lamb that's all cuddly and cute and soft living with you for 14 days. You feed it almost from the table. You look after it. And of course, if you have a cute little lamb, you will cuddle with it. Um, and those who have pets understand that stuff. I'm not really a pet person, so I'm thinking it's an animal. Okay, cool. Might be cute, but that's it. But um, I have a friend who went to Israel and actually during Passover, and he says it's unbelievable. You sit there and this cute little lamb comes to you and you play with it and all this. Yeah, and then 14 days later, you are the one who's going to be sacrificing that. You're going to kill the lamb, let it bleed out, roast it, eat it. And take the blood and put it on the. Okay, I should be coming to an end. Um, and, and put the blood onto the doorposts. And that would be the sign to the angel of death to walk by. An act of faith. Because as if the blood would keep an angel away. Let's not kid ourselves. 
it wouldn't. But it's the faith that the person put in God and what God said. So if there was blood on the door, there was no blood in the house. But if there was no blood on the door, there was blood in the house. And the angel would go through the whole country and kill. And the Jews were celebrating this as one of their main feasts that God had commanded them. And with the point in history where they were, this was a very tense time because they were oppressed by the Romans. They couldn't wait for a Messiah to come and kick these Romans out of their country so they have freedom again. So there was anticipation for all this. Um, and they were just hoping that somebody would come, finally stand up and defeat the Romans and kick them out of their land. And while they were doing all this, they didn't realize that the real Passover Lamb of God was walking among them. Jesus. He would be the Passover lamb, not just for the Jews, but for everyone who would believe in him. And again, faith is the reason for salvation. It's not because we say words, because we do things. Faith in Jesus is the reason for salvation. And Jesus would die in the place of firstborn. Thankfully, not only the firstborn for everyone else who is not born first like I am, but for everyone who would believe. And none of these people knew that this was Jesus' final weeks coming up. This would be the last time that a sacrifice was necessary. Because Jesus would be the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. That would not just cover the sins of the world, but he would take them away. And Jesus' death means that I don't have to die anymore. And over the past two weeks, Daniel shared with us that Jesus gives life that goes beyond death. It goes beyond the grave. We don't have to be afraid. And before the Feast of Passover, these people, they have to purify themselves. So then what does that mean, purify themselves? We, because we don't do that anymore. We have a shower every day. They didn't. But, um, so they would go to these um, little pools, or yeah, they were called mikvah, and they would walk down one side into, down the stairs into this water, wash themselves, come out the other side, in a, on a different stairs so that they wouldn't touch any unclean people and put new clothes on and there they were in their new robes. New clothes, fully purified, ready to meet the holy God. We've just read about Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. They were major parts in the public display and religious rituals. They went into the pools and purified themselves. While they're in the pool, they might be thinking, oh, I hope Jesus didn't, doesn't show up on the Passover because if we have to kill him, we are, we are um, defiled. These guys, in their minds, they, there's something completely different going on. And how fitting was what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 27 to 28. He said, you blind Pharisees, first clean the outside of the cup and the plate, or maybe the body, and then... The out, uh, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all kind of uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These guys were preparing this wonderful, beautiful religious 
display. In reality, they were nothing more than actors. Pretending. They were filthy. They were horrible. They were stinking. Stinking hypocrites. And all of us sometimes live in this place. Like, I need to preach and there's Ezra messing around, so I give him a death stare. And the next thing, <laughs> I, the next thing I do is sing, this is amazing grace. <laughs> but it's not my continual life. Like, I don't sit there and think, I really want to kill my son. And say, this is amazing grace. I want to kill my son. I don't. But these guys were living in sin. They were constantly thinking about, how can we get Jesus? How can we get Jesus? I think in another gospel, he even says, hopefully he doesn't come on the, Passover, on the Passover, so we don't defile ourselves. All their life was taken up by this. They were actively living in sin, actively looking to arrest Jesus. And it wasn't only them, it was they told everyone, if you see Jesus, tell us so we can arrest him. And everyone was looking for Jesus. And there again, it's an interesting parallel. Somebody once said, there's a Jesus-shaped hole in our hearts, and only Jesus can fill it. Everyone is looking for Jesus in some way. So the people ask, what do you think? Is he going to come? Is he going to show up at the feast? And apparently the way the Greek is worded here, the answer is no. If you want to know if he comes or not, come next week. <laughs> um, just a few conclusions. I've got a few questions for us to think about. What do you do with what you hear about Jesus? What do you see about Jesus? The way he shows himself in this church, in his word. There were different reactions to Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus. And there was no way of re refuting the miracle of raising Lazarus. Because Lazarus was walking around alive. The people made a decision, not just in their heads, but in their hearts. Because their heads knew. Their heads must have known. This guy is special. Jesus is different. But their hearts were hard because they decided they didn't want to follow him. And it made me think of um, my auntie, and we've been praying for her as long as I live really my mom's sister she has heard the gospel from a young age but she decided to rebel and to this day she knows she's been on ladies weekends away with my mom they went to israel her and her husband with on a holiday and they were telling all these things in in some kind of churches and all these um myths about jesus and she says don't believe all this if you want to know who jesus is read the bible but she doesn't believe. She doesn't want to follow Jesus because that would mean her whole life would be turned upside down. And she would have to say, I was wrong. And she's the sweetest lady, and I'm going to test to it. But her heart towards God is hard. And we all have people like that in our, heart, in our lives. And if, uh, if that's you, then don't be hard-hearted. Hard, no, hard-hearted. Hearted. Have a soft heart. Know that Jesus loves you. He died for you. He gave his life. He didn't stay dead. He came back to life. And if you believe that he is who he says he is, then follow him. Don't just say, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen the facts. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. There's a God out there. That's not going to save you. Believe him. Trust him. 
lean on him and say, I can't be saved by myself. You need to save me. And there's Jesus shaped hole in all our hearts. And only he can satisfy and fill it perfectly. Second question I want to ask is, what if Jesus is in the way of your agenda? What if you have your plans and dreams and aspirations of this life? And then Jesus comes and he's got different plans. And he's got different ideas. Caiaphas and the 70 other guys in the, in the Sanhedrin, they decided my plan is more important than God's plan. I'm going to play 4D chess. I'm going to outplay God. It didn't end well for them. Don't be hard against God. Let Him mold you. His agenda and His idea for your life is infinitely greater, just as much as God's idea and God's purpose in the words that Caiaphas said are bigger than what Caiaphas could have thought or ever imagined. That's how much bigger and greater Jesus' agenda and idea for your life is. He loves you and He loves those around you as well. And He works in your life and He wants to make you more like Him. He wants to shape your character. And just this week somebody said a good, good and clever saying. He said, God is willing to sacrifice your comfort on the altar of your character. God is willing to sacrifice your comfort on the altar of your character. And I think it's true. I like living in my comfort zone. We all do because it makes us feel comfortable. We have nice and comfy sofas and all this stuff. That's why we like to be comfortable. Nobody sits on a wooden chair for a long time just because they can if they have a sofa next to them. But let's not be comfortable in our lives. Let's be transformed into His character. And the last question I want to ask is, what about all those children of God who are scattered abroad? In a way, every person is... In may, and every person is made in the image of God and in that way we are children of God but there's no spiritual life in how many of them? 227 years worth of seconds that's how many people there are out there Jesus is still in the business of saving souls and you can join him and I can join him it's a privilege to join our savior in his endeavor to save and bring many more into his family Jesus wants all people to come and know him and love him. He wants to save everyone. Jesus welcomes everybody. But he is the exclusive salvation. Jesus' arms are all wide open. He's going to take anybody in and everybody. But if you're not in his arms, you're outside of salvation. His arms are open, but one day they will close. And there are billions of people who have no idea about Jesus. Let's join in for the fight of the souls, for the souls. And there's no greater honor than to join the King of Kings and Lords of Lords in His mission to save souls whom He loves so much. Okay, let me pray and then I'll hand back over. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You gave us Jesus. We thank You, Jesus, that You came, You gave Your life for us, that we would know You that we could live forever. We thank you that you came and you didn't keep your comfort, but you sacrificed your comfort for our salvation. We thank you for that. And we pray that in our hearts and in our lives, our hearts would, hearts would be soft 
and not hard against you. But we would know you, we would get to know you, we would get to love you. We would learn to honor you. And we pray that our lives and our dreams and our ideas of our own lives wouldn't stand in the way of your ideas for our lives. And we pray for so many people out there who aren't in a position where they can make an informed decision about you. We pray for more workers, more laborers in your field. Our Father, please send more. Amen.